With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. fans everywhere. My name is Michael LeColin, also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, and I welcome you to this evening's 68th numbered episode of a Metsian podcast. A belated happy Thanksgiving to all. Under the circumstances, I hope your holiday was calm and peaceful, and I hope uh, everything was delicious and filling at the same time. So let us begin. We have a lot to do. Uh, first, my partner here, at a Metsian podcast is our newly minted president of podcast operations, Sam Maxwell, everyone. <laughs> Hello, good evening, sir. Good evening. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. And just on a football note, of course, we have one team miraculously in first place with a four and seven record. And another one, we only can hope that uh, they're in first place when it comes to the draft order at the end of the year. <laughs> Speeding at, uh, going at the speeding light, passing each other on the throughway. Unbelievable. Uh, speaking of which, the third member of this triumvirate is also a Giants fan like myself. And unlike Sam, Rich Farago hailing from Connecticut. Hello, friend. Hey, Mike. Hi, Sam. How's everybody doing? Um, happy holiday weekend. And um, I think everybody's uh, – you know, getting ready for, we've had our plate full of Thanksgiving food, but now we need our plate full of some baseball news. So we're looking forward to it. And with haste, uh, we have a very interesting uh, show planned this evening, all thanks to our featured guest. And I'll simply start by saying he is the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, the AAA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Mr. Howard Kelman, everyone. Hello and good evening and welcome, sir. Well, thank you so much, guys, and uh, it's great speaking with you, and I'm honored to be on the podcast. Uh, you know, we have various people on, and we're concerned with how you're dealing with the epidemic, COVID, etc. And, you know, before we get into what is the distraction in life, let's pay closer attention to the more important things. How are you, sir, and how are things? Paint us that picture uh, uh, of life amongst this pandemic in Indianapolis, if you don't mind, sir. Well, I'm doing fine. We have had uh, the last month an uptick in cases. We had no minor league baseball season. It was the first time in my adult life I didn't broadcast Indianapolis Indians baseball. And it was disappointing. It was the first time there was no Indianapolis Indians baseball since 1902. So 
the adjustment was made, and the hope is that we will have a full season in 2021. It was a very difficult thing financially, not only for the Indianapolis Indians, but for all the clubs in minor league baseball. Uh, and you mentioned that the team was founded in 1902. It is the second oldest yes. minor league team in the United States of America. And you've been there, sir, since 1974. You're coming up on your 50th anniversary in a couple of years. Uh, first of all, congratulations on such a distinguished career. And it's well, easily thank said thank that you. you are truly, it is easily said that you are truly, and you are truly the voice of Indianapolis and local baseball fans. Uh, you've seen a lot, sir. I, I just want you to go through some, just some of the highlights of a, a very long and distinguished career. And then I'd like to get into a couple of details, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, one thing that I would say immediately is the night of June 15, 1977, when the Mets traded Tom Seaver, they traded him for two former Indianapolis Indians who were with the Reds, Doug Flynn and Pat Zachary, and two men who were with the Indianapolis Indians that night in Danny Norman and Steve Henderson. So that, that rocked our clubhouse right after our game that night on June the 15th. And so that comes to mind immediately involving the Mets. And we had a nice uh, Mets, by the way, St. John's University, Indianapolis Indians connection over the years in that Johnny Franco, Frank Viola, Terry Bross, C.J. Nitkowski all pitched for the Indianapolis Indians, St. John's, and the Mets. But my first year, we were loaded with talent. We had Ray Knight, who you guys remember, too, another former Met at third base. Doug Flynn was the shortstop. They both went on to play more than 10 years in the big leagues. Joel Youngblood in the outfield, another former Met, and he went on to play more than 10 years in the outfield. Ed Armbrister, Roger Freed. And the pitching was not quite up to par as the position players were, but we were loaded with prospects. And I think that there were more prospects back then than there are in this day and age. And you also see, you've seen, as you said, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of great players. Randy Johnson stands out as the guy who went on to do the best. He's one of the great pitchers of all time with five Cy Young Awards. We had him in 1988. He's a USC guy, and he had a great arm. But, guys, as you well know, there are a lot of guys who have great arms that never harness their control. Well, he ultimately did and became great. The following year, Larry Walker played for us, and he would have been inducted into the Hall of Fame this past summer and will be next summer. So there have been a lot of all-stars, MVPs. The only former Indianapolis Indian to go on and win more than one MVP was Roger Maris, who won two with the Yankees in 1960 and 61. Our most recent former Indianapolis Indian who was an MVP was Andrew McCutcheon, who won it in 2013. And the reason a lot of these names come up is because during your career, uh, Indianapolis served as a AAA affiliate of the Reds two different times the Expos, 
and the Brewers. Now, the Expos, as you mentioned already, some players, between 86, 87, 88, 89, you saw some titles. And you saw the development of a group of players that goes down as one of the greatest teams that no one knows about. The Montreal Expos that would not play in the World Series due to the strike of 1994. But you saw many of those players come up. Well, that's exactly right. And Larry Walker and Randy Johnson are two of them. And we worked with Montreal from 1984 to 1992. And that period, saw that nine-year period, saw the Indianapolis Indians win five championships, including four in a row from 1986 to 89. And, guys, it's really hard to repeat anywhere, but in the minor leagues, with the turnover in personnel, it's extremely difficult to repeat, and our ball club won four straight times. But you're right. Uh, Mark Gardner was a star for us. Razor Shines was the most popular player on the team. He was a coach for the Mets a few years ago under Jerry Manuel. Jerry Manuel played for us and also was a coach and also was our manager in 1991 before he got a job with the Expos as a major league coach. So, That era you mentioned, the Montreal era, is the one that sticks out the most because of the five championships in nine years and the Hall of Famers like Randy Johnson and Larry Walker and so many other good players, too. Andres Galarraga, for instance, to name another one. Um, I'm terribly excited to be speaking with you this evening uh, because I could certainly get carried away, and I'm going to pass it along to my partners for their questions, but I have one more, and this is rather general. This has to do with Indianapolis itself. Uh, Again, the team was founded in 1902. We're talking about 118 years. This is a city that is rich and steeped in baseball history, and I will also include in this conversation, just because it's the 100th anniversary of the National Negro Leagues, uh, the Indianapolis ABCs. Uh, How much recognition and is there a common conversation happening amongst the citizenry? Well, yes, uh, Hank Aaron played for the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952, although I don't think he ever played a game in Indianapolis they were traveling in, and Oscar Charleston is talked about too, but well talked about. We have a great tradition of baseball, and we also have a thriving downtown. Our ballpark, Victory Field, is downtown. I say thriving. It was obviously till the pandemic and Hopefully it will be again. But when I first came to Indianapolis in the mid-1970s, downtown would shut down at night. Well, you had Market Square Arena open, then a little bit later, and then you have uh, Bankers Life Fieldhouse where the Pacers now play, Lucas Oil Stadium where the Indianapolis Colts play, and Victory Field where the Indianapolis Indians play. So, And there's so many restaurants in downtown has had an incredible renaissance here in the last 20 years. And we do have a great baseball tradition, as you mentioned, first in the American Association, mostly from 1997, and from 1998 onward, it's been in the International League. Sam, I will pass the baton on to you. Thanks. Uh, And Howard, uh, thank you again for joining us this evening. I want to get into the Mets and and your experiences with them, but, you know, I I do want to continue the conversation about the Indianapolis Indians. Um, 
And, you know, when you first see the team, of course you think to yourself that they must have always been a Cleveland Indians affiliate, but that is obviously not the case. And uh, looking at the affiliation, it's interesting that they didn't start with the, uh, the Indians, uh, but they were an affiliate from 1952 to 1956. Of course, Indianapolis and Indians, the name, uh, it makes sense that they would be married in, in some form or another at some point. It's natural. Um, but, uh, however, I, I guess within that context of the history of the team and also within the, the conversation about the Redskins and Cleveland itself right now, has there been any conversations that have been people been trying to, to get that done, changing the name of the team? Um, or is it kind of a little easier to, to settle in uh, in a place like Indianapolis? Well, there's a committee, Sam, right now discussing that and seeing what we should do, and they're talking to our fans, and uh, the board is involved with that as well. So that will be determined. I give you credit for doing your homework in that most people immediately think we had something to do with the Cleveland Indians. That's why we were named the Indianapolis Indians, and it had nothing to do with that at all. As you said, we go back to 1902, and that's – Indiana, and that's how it, the newspaper writers back then just started calling them Indians, and that's how we got the name. Now, Cleveland did own the franchise, actually, and was our parent team from 1952 to 56, as you said, and after that, we have not been owned. We're community-owned since 1956, shareholders, and we have not had an ownership. Now, most Triple-A teams, most minor league teams have working agreements. The Mets and Syracuse are different now because the Mets own Syracuse, the same for the Yankees and scranton Wilkesbury. And this is all uh, being talked about now in the new agreement between the major leagues and the minor leagues. But we take pride in the – we have not had many complaints at all over the years in our name being the Indianapolis Indians, although with the sensitivity there, it is being discussed now. Thank you. Rich. So, Howard, again, as, as Sam and Mike both said, thank you for joining us. And, um, and, and the question I have for you, you, you kind of touched on it, but I'd like you to go a little, little deeper. Culture in Indiana when it comes to baseball. When I think about the state of Indiana, and, and this just – I could be completely wrong. I think about basketball. You know, Hoosiers and, and the Annapolis Pacers and all that. Okay, fine. And then you have the Colts, right, who seem to have a, uh, a pretty strong following. Uh, to be honest with you, Howard, you know, baseball doesn't come to mind when I think about the state of Indiana and Indianapolis. And so what I'm asking you is, is that just a perception? Like, in other words, is there a deep passion for the sport of baseball? And, and you know what I'm, where I'm coming from. Here in the Northeast, it's, I believe it's a baseball first region of the country. Um, and I think other areas are as well. Um, you know, certainly there are areas we could point to, like Pittsburgh, where certainly football's out front, and Cleveland as well. Um, I, you know, I, I have the perception that that football's out front. So what I'm asking you is, what is it like doing baseball in Indianapolis? Like, are the fans passionate? Are they fervent fans? Can can you talk a little more about that? Well, they are passionate, but it's not like the Pacers or the Colts. They're in the NBA. They're in the NFL. And this is AAA baseball, minor league baseball. Now, the franchise goes back, obviously, a lot longer than the Pacers and Colts. The Colts moved here 
1984, and the Pacers go back. They were an original ABA team, 1967-68. But there is passion there. Just a little history on what happened. Right after World War II, minor league and major league baseball flourished, and Indianapolis Indians set attendance records and did great. Then about 1952, television became prominent in this country. And it wasn't so much televised baseball as that people were fascinated with TV. And they stopped going out and supporting their local minor league teams. And Major League Baseball's attendance went down during that period also. So you talk about the 50s into the 60s, there was a lot of red ink. A lot of trouble in minor league baseball financially. And in the mid-70s, our franchise started to turn around and make some money again. The biggest key in the 1970s for the Indianapolis Indians, whether they would be five or $10,000 in the black or $100,000 in the red, was the Cincinnati Reds exhibition game. Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan – those guys come to town, and that meant everything to our franchise. So when I got there in 1974, we drew about 130,000 people, which isn't much at all, and minor league baseball was not doing well. Slowly and surely, the attendance increased. Then in 1996, we moved into Victory Field, and now we draw some 600,000 people. So minor league baseball has had a tremendous renaissance, and it had a down period in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, and little by little with these new stadia all across the country and fan support, it's done very well. Thank you for that. that that's perspective I can't possibly have, so thank you for sharing that. You're sure. listening to a Metsian podcast this evening, and our featured guest is broadcaster of the Indianapolis Indians, AAA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Mr. Howard Kelman. And Howard, uh, with regards to your broadcasting career, I, I have a two-parter here. Uh, first of which, at Indianapolis, you worked with a, a, a certain Brooklyn Dodger, uh, a Mr. Carl Erskine. I was wondering if you could tell us about him. And then you also uh, called Met Games at uh, the behest of Howie Rose. I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Sure. Well, with regard to Carl, he's from Anderson, Indiana, and he told me that at uh, Ebbets Field, quite often, the most played song by organist Gladys Gooding was back home again in Indiana because of Carl and because of Gil Hodges, who was from the southwest part of the state in Princeton, Indiana. But Carl was a former broadcast, was a broadcast partner of mine on television for a number of years, and we're close friends, and he, he will turn 94 in a few weeks. And he's doing fine, sharp as can be. I haven't seen him in a while due to the pandemic, but I love working with him. I could go on and on about the things I've learned from him. I'll just tell you one quick thing. He said to me one day, what do you think the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers' biggest disappointment was in the World Series and losing those World Series to the Yankees? And I said, Carl, my guess would be 1952 because you had the Yankees three games to two, you were ahead and going back to Brooklyn for games six and seven. He said, well, that was disappointing. The Yankees came back and they won game six and seven. But he said the biggest disappointment 
was losing the seventh game in 1956. We had won the year before. Our confidence was great. We had Don Newcomb on the mound that day. We were a great hitting ball club. Don Newcomb on the mound, who had won the Cy Young, the first ever Cy Young Award that year. And Johnny Cooks was pitching for the Yankees. And so we thought we had every single advantage possible. And I wouldn't have believed what happened, he said, but the Yankees won the game 9 nothing in the World Series. So I could go on and on about other things he shared, and uh, we'll get into that at a different time. But a uh, wonderful man, very sharp, and just a joy to be around, and very knowledgeable, too. Now, you mentioned the Mets broadcast, and Howie Rose and I have been friends since 1972, when I was a junior at Brooklyn College and he was a freshman, he only stayed there one semester, then he transferred to Queens. And he came up, and I was the sports director of the radio station, and he came up, went on the air, did sportscasts, so we became friends at that time. And when they needed somebody to fill in, he recommended me, so I sent my tape to WOR, and uh, Tom Cuddy, the program director, approved it, so... It was in September, mid-September of 2014, that I did three games. It was a lot of fun. It was in Atlanta, and the uh, Mets swept the series. And the one, the one particular moment that will really stand out, and it was great working with Howie, and he does a magnificent job calling Mets games, but the one moment that will really stand out was we were discussing Lafayette High School in Brooklyn and all the terrific players that have come out of there. And, of course, Sandy Koufax, Johnny Franco, the Aspromane brothers, Pete Falcone. And then I said to Howie, and let's not forget Al the Bull Ferrara. And then Howie said, when Tom Seaver struck out 10 San Diego Padres in a row, Al Ferrara was his first victim and his 10th victim. And I said yes, and then... Al was traded to the Cincinnati Reds for Angel Bravo. And Ferrara's first game in the outfield, he had a rough time. And a reporter said, Al, you had a rough time tonight in the outfield. And Ferrara said to the reporter, hey, who did you guys think you were getting for Angel Bravo? Willie Mays? <laughs> So that really stands out, that moment of the, the byplay between the two of us. That's outstanding. Uh, Rich, I will go in reverse order. I will hand it off to you, sir. Okay, so Howard, um, you know, changing the conversation a bit to, um, to the current state of the Mets. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you have some track record, and it's great to hear. Um, what, what you were just saying about that. I, I did have one quick question, if I, could, if I could double up before asking you the question I had in mind. And that would be, when you would fill in, you know, and you were saying that you did the Mets games right up through 2014, um, how, how much advance notice did you get? Because here you are, you're busy doing the Indianapolis games. Obviously, you know, you might be on the road. You know, you're, you're trying to stay on top of all of that. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, okay, well, I'm going to be filling in for Howie Rose doing, doing some Mets games for a weekend or what have you. You know, did you have a lot of notice? And, and what was that preparation like? I was just kind of fascinated to hear about that. Well, I did have five weeks. It was about five weeks before that that they let me know. And also the minor league baseball season ended 
on Labor Day. It ends on Labor Day. And that series, I want to say, I think was September 19th, 20th, and 21st. Now, we did not get in the postseason that year, so our season did end Labor Day. And so I did have plenty of time. And, you know, with this day and age with the Internet, and I listened to a number of the broadcasts, too, on the baseball package on radio and watch on TV. I have the TV package, too, the uh, MLB Extra Innings package. So I felt really prepared for it. And so, and of course, talking to players and communicating. And I also went back. It was great to see Terry Collins. Uh, Terry, I got to know when he managed the Buffalo Bisons in 1989, 90, and 91. And it was nice to see him again. So it was a lot of fun and a great few days. Awesome. And so the other question I wanted to ask you, Howard, if I could, was you're an industry insider, obviously, you know, long time in the sport. Um, but, you know, you know, you've had some connections to the Mets, but you're not directly involved in the Mets on a day-to-day basis. So my question to you is, from an, an industry insider who, you know, is a bit removed from the Mets themselves, when you look at the recent ownership change of, of the Will Ponds to Cohen, what is your reaction? And perhaps if you could extrapolate that just a little bit, if you, if you can, to what is the industry's reaction to that? Because, you know, here as Met fans, we're, you know, we're very uh, close to it, and we've had a certain reaction, quite visceral reaction. Uh, but what is the reaction that you might have, and then if you could extrapolate it to industry in general? Oh, I think it's very favorable. And uh, it's a wonderful thing and nothing but positive things to say. And all that I've heard now, as you know, I'm in Indiana. I'm not right there like you guys are. But uh, I just think it's a great thing. And that's the feeling among people in baseball and baseball in general. And, and by the way, I'm delighted that the Mets bought the Syracuse team because the last few years we've had Syracuse and the Mets working together so I've gotten to see them when the Mets were out in Las Vegas for their triple-a team I didn't get a chance to see them so uh, I would text Howie and let him know what was going on whenever we played Syracuse and so uh, I just think it's a terrific thing and I have not heard negative negative uh, feedback at all and you mentioned the Wilpons and Fred Wilpon too is a Lafayette High School graduate in Brooklyn and uh, I've heard a lot of really nice things about him as a person over the years. It's going way back. So uh, maybe it was time for a change, and that was the feeling. And certainly I think it's a great thing for the Mets. Great. Thank you. Sam? Um, I, I think you said my name, and I'm going to assume it's uh, because of the silence. So, uh Howard, within the context of you broadcasting Met games, I kind of I want to go through your entire career, you know, and, and what your thought process is when you're sitting down in a booth next to Howie and with so many broadcasters having come before you, uh, so many amazing broadcasters having come before you that you are now entering the, the river of, if you will. Um, and within the context of also coming from New York, it, 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 I'm, I'm interested in how I'm going to frame this, but I think it'll all make sense. So when, when you do sit down, uh, um, are you thinking about Lindsey Graham? Are you thinking about Bob Murphy and, and Ralph Kiner? Are you thinking about all these guys who have come into the, that booth before? And also considering that you were a part of, of Queens broadcast history with St. John's, um, and which I, I basically believe 
to be the college team in a pro sports town. Um, does, does all of this come up? And also within the context of being a Brooklyn native, when you're coming up and broadcasting, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether you had a Brooklyn accent. Right now your, your accent's pretty not, quote, unquote, the Brooklyn accent of, of Oisk, as, you know, to, to go back to Carl Erskine. So is it something that, like, they, they teach you within the broadcasting world to kind of get rid of? Because uh, it's not like you ever hear those oys really come through in the broadcasting world. It, 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 you don't have those, those accents like a New York accent. So if you could kind of, you know, go wherever you want, start wherever you want, um, but by all means, please, within the, the context of, of broadcasting itself. Some really great questions there. Uh, I had a severe Brooklyn accent growing up in Sheepshead Bay, although I didn't realize it because I was surrounded by it. And then I got to Brooklyn College, and my speech teacher said to me, and I still stay in touch with my first ever speech teacher, Margaret Flynn, my teacher in the fall of 1970, and she and Professor Sylvia Blackman, my professor the following year for diction, they work with me, and I worked very hard at losing the Brooklyn accent. Now, when I came to Indianapolis four years later, I still had some of it, I think. I, there's, there's two accents. There's the Brooklyn accent, and there's the regionalism, the New York accent, too, where you would not hit an R in New York. I used to say alma mater. I didn't even know it was spelled M-A-T-E-R. You know, you would not hit an R in New York. But the Brooklyn accent, there were two different accents. I worked very, very hard. And then, you know, as I stayed in Indianapolis, I learned some more things here and there. And, I, you know, in, in, in New York and in the East Coast, I'll say Florida and Orange, where in the Midwest they say Florida and Orange. So with regard to the accent, I felt that if I were to succeed in this business, I would have to lose that Brooklyn accent once I became aware I had one, and I worked very hard at losing it. Now, there are many people I've met from New York who've been in Indianapolis who moved here in other places 20, 25 years. They still have their accents because they never worked on losing them, and they didn't really have to. It wasn't important for what they did. So uh, that, that was the last part of your question. Oh, you asked about the Mets. It was a great thrill. There's no question about it. And I remember the Mets going way back to day one. Even before that, I still remember. I followed them very closely. And at the expansion draft, Casey Stengel saying when the Mets took Hobie Landreth, a catcher, as their first ever pick, and they say, why did you take him? And Casey said, well, if you don't have a catcher, you're going to have a lot of pass balls. So, uh, I remember that. I remember that first night in St. Louis, their first ever game. Roger Craig pitched, and they lost. They lost their first nine, and then they had a nice run. They upped their record to 12-19 and 19 after three straight wins and a Sunday doubleheader in Milwaukee. But then those 1962 Mets lost 17 in a row. So it was a great thrill. Yes, I did think of Bob Murphy, Ralph Kyra, Lindsey Nelson, and what it meant to be filling in, and, and it was really neat. And as I said, it's something I'll always remember, and that one particular uh, anecdote that I shared about Al Ferrara, to me, meant so much as a broadcaster because it was two guys, Howie and myself, Howie knowing everything about the Mets history and myself with my baseball knowledge, 
sharing a couple of things and anecdotes about Al. And so uh, just a lot of fun and meant a lot to me. I filled in on the White Sox broadcast a number of years ago also, and that was back in the 1980s when I was applying for big league jobs, and that was a lot of fun too. Just uh, to pick up where Sam left off, Howard, uh, if my math serves me correctly, it seems you were doing St. John's basketball games, and you immediately went to Indianapolis, where obviously you spent your remaining years to date. Right. Well, again, you guys did your preparation, your homework. What happened was uh, in the fall of my uh, sophomore year, I convinced the Brooklyn College radio station to broadcast their basketball games. So I did a couple of games uh, on WBCR, Brooklyn College Radio. I uh, met a fellow named David Halberstam, who later would broadcast for the Miami Heat and later broadcast St. John's games. David was a Hunter College student. And David hired me in January of 1973 with St. John's approval to broadcast St. John's basketball games. We started out doing a Saturday night game, and then we went on and did most of the remaining games. That year, they made it to the NCAA tournament, got as far as ninth in the country, but they they lost to Penn in the first round. And remember, guys, this is pre-Big East. So while St. John's meant something was important, it wasn't like it would be 10 years later when you had the Big East Conference. Frank Maltoff was the coach that year, and WRVR 106.7 was the FM station that broadcast the games. And I was thrilled to be doing it. And what happened was they liked what I did, and St. John's had a football package on TV Although it wasn't official NCAA football, it was considered club football, but nonetheless, they had a TV package where they would do several games, and they hired me to do that that fall. And that fall, the fall of 73, I wrote a letter to every minor league baseball team, and there were about 110 teams at that time. I got about 25 responses, and I must admit, you know, I was 21 years old. I, I realized now that I was naive because I thought the reason why I only got 25 answers was because the letters were being lost in the mail, not that people didn't respond. I didn't realize that. So anyway, of the 25 responses, there were three job openings. One was in Albuquerque, one was in Spokane, and one was in Indianapolis. So I sent a tape of my play-by-play to each of those three franchises. And Spokane was also interested in me, and they flew me out there. They said, let's wait a little while. we got to get a deal done with our beer sponsor. And nothing happened. And then while I was waiting to hear back from them, and I believe Ed Randall went there the following year, while I was waiting to hear back from Spokane, Indianapolis contacted me, flew me out, and I took the Indianapolis Indians job. That's outstanding. And now, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you and I'm going to pick your brain and see if you can educate us and help us unravel the minutia uh, of minor league baseball under Rob Manfred and the owner's new mandates, uh, because this is also confusing. You, with the Indianapolis Indians, a AAA affiliate, obviously, minor league, the landscape of minor league baseball is being revamped. Uh, they seem safe. But my question is, from your location, one of the independent leagues out there, 
is the American Association, a very prominent independent circus like the circuit, like over here with the Atlantic League. And I'm going to frame the question this way because of a, de a development that happens here locally, and I'm hoping that you can translate this for me. The New York Yankees incorporated the Somerset Patriots as their new AA affiliate. The Somerset Patriots were a member of the Independent Atlantic League. And then my yes. question to you, my question to you is, how how is that relationship amongst the Patriots and the Atlantic League transformed now that they are an affiliate of the Yankees? Does Somerset come out of the Atlantic League and get inserted into the Eastern League, or do they continue operating in the circuit with the other independents, but as an affiliated team? This is also confusing, and I'm hoping you can clarify this. Uh, hopefully I can. Somerset pays uh, a fee. I'm not sure how much. Nobody except those people know. A fee to Major League Baseball to get an affiliated ball. And Somerset becomes a member of the Eastern League, no longer is in the Atlantic League. They become, they become a member of the Eastern League. So it's, it's almost like when you have an expansion team in the major leagues, you know, the, and the last expansion was, what, 1998 with Tampa Bay and Arizona. When those teams came in, they paid a big fee to Major League Baseball to gain admittance. So Somerset does not pay anything to the Yankees in that. They pay the money to Major League Baseball to secure uh, a double-A franchise or, and a franchise in professional baseball, affiliated baseball, and any other team. And there are other, there's another example, too. I think in Houston, I think Sugarland is going from independent baseball to becoming the Astros' triple-A team, and they'll have the same situation where they will pay Major League Baseball to become a member of affiliated baseball. Now, the independent leagues are going to be really important now with no more short season ball. So Major League Baseball, as you guys probably have heard, is striking out, striking up some agreements within the independent leagues. And the follow-up to this question. Now, I, I hope I don't phrase this incorrectly, but let's just say over the last few decades, Triple-A baseball has lost some of its luster. Uh, the scouts and whatnot, they say, well, the true barometer of talent now lies at the double-A level. With the contraction of the minor leagues, Major League Baseball teams want to contract their operations to four minor league affiliates. Does that bring up the level of triple-A baseball again, and, and will they recapture – and I put this in quotes, their former glory and make triple A baseball uh or or, or or will we perceive triple A baseball the way it once was? Well I watch a triple A baseball game every day and during the baseball season and the caliber of play is very good. And you know, when they say sometimes the prospects are in double A, but look at it this way. How many players, there are many, go from double-A to the big leagues? Now, Frank Thomas comes to mind immediately, uh, and he's still a while back, obviously. But you don't want to rush players as a general rule. Sometimes they are rushed because of injuries. 
Because when you rush a player, he might not know how to handle failure and his self-confidence can get destroyed. So I really I, I have to disagree in that I think the caliber of AAA baseball is fine. I never had seen a minor league baseball game until I came out here. And I think the caliber is fine. The guys have good arms. The difference is a little more polished in the major leagues. But if you were to say to me that – players were skipping triple-A left and right and going right from double-A to the big leagues, then you'd have a point about prospects. But we see the prospects coming in here, like, for instance, Andrew McCutcheon, who I mentioned earlier. He spent a year and a half here, and he was ready when he got called up, and he won the MVP a couple of years later in the major leagues. So go through, you can go through Mets players and so forth, but the overwhelming majority of players – the overwhelming majority of players play AAA baseball. It may not be as long as you would like it to be sometimes. Now, as to what effect the contraction is going to have on that, I'm not sure. Uh, that remains to be seen. You know, you only have four. Teams are only going to have four affiliates now, AAA, AA, and two A teams, high A and low A. So, uh, I, I do feel that quality is really good, and if I feel it had gone downhill, I'd tell you that, but I don't think it has at all. Well, I derived that from Scuttlebutt, and I'm glad to have that clarified by you. And that said, I will pass it off to Sam. Thank you, Mike. Um, in in regards to the changes for uh, independent league baseball, you know, how, how do you see uh, the American Association Atlantic League with everything going on that we were just talking about with affiliated minor league baseball? What do you think the future is for those two leagues? Well, uh, with no more short season teams, more players will come to there right out of high school and college. My hope is that we won't lose a lot of guys who are late bloomers, that they will go to independent ball and play there. Because some guys, it takes some guys a while, especially pitchers, obviously, to harness their control and so forth. So that's what my hope is, that we're not going to lose guys who aren't drafted out of high school or college and just say, because the draft will be shrunk now too, you won't be filling these short season rosters. Guys just say, look, this is not for me where if he was a 20th round pick but had a chance to sign, you never know. You never know. So that's what the hope is. This this makes the Atlantic League, the American Association, the Independent Leagues are more important now because of the lack of short season ball. Thank you. Rich? Rich? Hey, so, um, okay, so Howard, with regard to – rule changes um, in Major League Baseball. Obviously, they have their roots, these rule changes, in the minor leagues. And in one case, in the case of the Universal DH, which still isn't decided upon to my knowledge, um, the DH obviously has, has roots going back to 1973 in the American League. So my question to you as somebody who's been around the game for a very long time, you know, since the early 70s or the mid-70s, as you mentioned, um, what, what are your thoughts? on the universal DH first, and then secondly, the extra inning rule. And I'm going to ask the second question in two parts. So your thoughts on the extra inning rule of starting the runner on, with a runner on second base, and 
What are your thoughts on doing it the way Major League Baseball did it, which I believe is the way some minor league te- minor leagues did it as well, where you start with a runner on second base in the tenth inning? Do you like if you? What are your thoughts on the rule? And then, would, do you like it that way, or would you prefer that maybe they play a couple of innings with traditional rules? Then, if it gets to be you know sort of like the twelfth inning or so, I've heard that thrown out, and that that's actually what I agree with play a couple of innings via the traditional rules, and then look, you know, if you want to just cut it short at that point, in the 12th inning, start with the runner on second base. What are your thoughts on what I'll call um, the evolving state of Major League Baseball and those rule changes? Well, we had the rule put in in 2018. So we had it in 2018 and 2019, the extra inning rule. And when, when it was first put in, I was very much against it and didn't like the idea whatsoever, thought it was contrived. And some people said, give it a chance. Well, I did, and I grew to like it a great deal. And for a couple of reasons, it does cut out the 17, 18 inning games, but more importantly, what it does is it adds an element of strategy that makes it very interesting. And you saw that in the big leagues this year. For instance, you got a man on second, nobody out, And some people feel, there are some people in our league that felt the visiting team might have the advantage in extra inning games. And, of course, we always know how important it is to to be at home during an extra inning game. But the visiting team might have a bit of an advantage because they're hitting with less pressure. And if they they don't score that run, obviously the home team has a big advantage. But the the, the run scores, what, 61% of the time. But if you play for one run, you can be beaten. So we rarely would see anybody bunt in the top half of the inning with a runner at second, nobody out. But what happened was the first time we had it, our manager, Brian Esposito, who's a Staten Island guy, by the way, he walked a man intentionally. We were at home, and then they moved him over, and two runs scored on a hit, and he never did that again afterward. So we we, – we saw what can happen, and you play for the big inning usually, but it's fascinating, all the elements and all the things that go into this. So uh, I am a big fan of it as far as starting it an inning or two later. I wouldn't disagree with that, but I don't mind it starting in the 10th inning. If you were going to start it later, I think the 11th inning would be the time to do it because most extra inning games end after the 10th inning, or at least half of them do. Here's another thing about rule changes that I think should happen. We have had this from 2015 in the International League, and that is a pitch clock. And, guys, I have to tell you, after a couple of weeks, almost everybody adjusted to it with no problem at all. 20 seconds with a man on base, 15 seconds, nobody on. The pitch clock is off after a foul ball, though. And... It was great and added so much. And that first year, 2015, the average time of international league games went from two hours and 56 minutes to two hours and 41 minutes. What's happened is the time has crept up steadily since then because of all the strikeouts. That's the issue I think that has to be dealt with is all the strikeouts. You need balls put in play, you know, the line of the true outcome, a home run, a strikeout, or a walk. Well, I think there's too much of that now in Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. So I think that's an issue that has to be addressed. 
But putting a pitch clock in, I think, will be fine, and I think teams will adjust to it in the major leagues very quickly, as we did in the minor leagues. And, of course, many of those players who were in the minor leagues then now are in the big leagues. You know, Howard, I wouldn't mind taking a second out and asking you uh, to give us a a, uh, preview uh, of the Pittsburgh Pirates system for Pirates fans and uh, Indianapolis fans. How's that? We are not, you know, nothing is official yet with these agreements, uh, although the Yankees have come out and said they're with Somerset and the Mets made their announcements, but nothing else is official yet. So uh, it would be a little too much for me to start talking about that. Now uh, we've been with the Pirates. We may very well continue with them, but it's still not official yet. And they've had some good players they've produced over the years, you know, we've had players who went from playing in Indianapolis to not only playing in the major leagues, but having an impact in the major leagues. And, of course, I mentioned Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, Gregory Polanco is another one. And there have been several others, too. And the Pirates have done pretty well with regard to players and taking players. They did take Jamison Tyone over Manny Machado with the second pick in the country in 2010, and we were wondering about that. Well, Tyone has had some good years, but he's been hurt. He's had two Tommy John surgeries, and you know about Machado's. Machado's a success, and you get into a dilemma. Do you take the position player or do you take the pitcher? And in this day and age, pitchers usually get hurt. So so we'll have to wait and see. And I think all all of this we've been discussing about the minor leagues and the major leagues should shake out within the next two to three weeks. We generally have a schedule in September. We don't have one yet because we don't know. You know, the agreement has to be finalized. Well, thank you for the education. Gentlemen, Sam, Rich, any outstanding issues? Otherwise, we'll uh, jump into the time machine. I just have one last I, I just – Rich, you go first. Go ahead. Howard, um your thoughts on the DH in general. I mean, you're, you're a baseball guy, you know, with it in your blood for a long time in general. What do you think of the DH? Well, I remember that first ever game. The Yankees were in Boston in 1973 and Ronnie Bloomberg became the first guy to bat. So he's remembered as the first designated hitter. And at the time, the national league was doing much better than the American league in terms of attendance. And that's why the American league said, Hey, you know, we can spark this with something different. And this was a radical change, and they made it, and you see what's happened. I think the DH is, is here to stay. And I think a big reason why it is, now it may not be incorporated in 2021. It might be too, but if it's not incorporated, I only think it's because it's a negotiating tool and will be incorporated in 2022 because teams feel that they don't want their pitchers to get hurt. They've invested so much money on them, and occasionally someone gets hurt running the bases. And, yeah, there's more offense with a DH, but you take away strategy, too. For instance, without a designated hitter, which is the way the Mets played all the time until this year, the number eight man in your lineup, in your batting order, is a key man because when there are two outs and nobody on and he comes up, You want him to get on base so he can turn over the batting order and let the pitcher make the last out of the inning as opposed to not having to lead off the next inning. When 
the man is leading off an inning or comes up with one out and nobody on that eighth place hitter, if he can get on base, well, then your pitcher can bunt and be productive with his plate appearance and move him over to second. So that number eight batter is, is a big, big key in a non-designated hitter game. And so what happens is in the American League, it's always been more of I'm going to outscore you and outslug you where there's been more strategy in the National League. And I will miss the strategy. I understand the point of uh, the safety issue. But uh, and we've had it both ways in our league, by the way, guys, in that if we play a National League affiliate, there is no DH. If we play an American League affiliate, there is a DH, whether it's at home or on the road, different from the big leagues then, not in your home ballpark, you know, hosting. So uh, uh, you can say, well, it's not exciting to watch a pitcher hit. True, it's not exciting to watch him hit, but the other pitcher can use a break now and then, too, with that nice place hitter. I'm with you. I'm not a fan. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, and, yeah, Howard, uh, what I was curious about was the stadium that the Indianapolis Indians have played in, generally speaking. Uh, since 1996, they played in Victory Field, but I was wondering if you could talk quickly about uh, Bush Stadium, not to be confused with Bush by the Anheuser-Busch family. Um, it, it, it is Bush more like uh, George W. So what, what's so interesting about it is that because it is a uh, – national landmark, uh, both on the U.S. Uh, as well as just, I guess there's two, the U.S. National Register of Historic Places and the National Register of Historic Places. Um, but this place has now been turned into apartments, uh, which is exactly what I believe would have happened had they had the same foresight uh, that the 90s and all this retrofitting has had with these places that Ebbets Field would have had the same fate. We would still have the Ebbets Field facade, which, alas, we don't. We have a, a, a terrible, uh, simplistic recreation of, of architects of architecture. Excuse me. But um, one, what was it like watching a baseball game in this historic place? And what is it like having it be an apartment building now in downtown? Well, the ballpark opened in 1931. It was Owen J. Bush Stadium after Owen Bush, Donnie Bush, who was from Indianapolis, played in the big leagues and managed in the big leagues too, Mr. Baseball in Indianapolis. Then on July 11th, 1996, we moved downtown to Victory Field. Bush Stadium was not downtown. It was a little north of downtown and about two miles from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So uh, it was a great move for us. And we will celebrate our 25th anniversary on July 11th of 2021 at Victory Field, 25 years. And the uh, Indians management has done a great job with upkeep and keeping the ballpark looking pristine. Bush Stadium, yes, it's true that they, they at first it was a, a dirt track and they've done different things with it since we left, but now they're apartments. I remember when I was a kid seeing Ebbets Field Apartments in Brooklyn, but that was a completely different situation, obviously. But uh, so, yeah, it's different. It's apartments. I, I broadcast at Bush Stadium for over 20 years, so I had feelings for it and still do. Uh, but once you get to downtown and a beautiful facility at Victory Field, which has happened throughout so many places in the minor leagues, 
for instance, the Syracuse Mets opened their ballpark the following year. They're not downtown, but they opened their new ballpark the following year in 1997. They were at old MacArthur Stadium prior to that. So uh, we have a beautiful downtown ballpark, and like so many others in the minor leagues, have great facilities. Thank you. You're listening to a Metsian podcast. Our featured guest this evening has been Howard Kelman, broadcaster, the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, the famous Indianapolis Indians, founded in 1902, 118 years old. What an incredible history, the second oldest minor league team in the USA. Uh, at this point, Mr. Kelman, we like to jump in what we call the time machine. We're going to talk about just a few players who've worn number 68 in Mets history. It's a short list. And we'll also reminisce over the 1968 regular season in Mets history. And we'll start with uniform numbers. This way you can collect your thoughts about the 68 season. And, Sam, uh, I personally, I'm going off the baseball reference list. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll recite what I see. Dellen Betances, Wilmer Font in 2019, Donnie Hart in 2019, and Jeff McNeil, and uh, Dario Alvarez, uh, 2014-2015. So uh, two names that obviously come to mind, but I'll let you pick it up, Sam. Uh, I'm only having Dario Alvarez, 2014-2015. to There's really not much, you know, Jeff McNeil only really – uh, as well as Dylan Betances, but I'm going to start with Jeff, Mc, uh, Jeff McNeil. Uh, you know, quickly did they strip him of 68? Uh, very, you know, basically this 2018 campaign with the number 68 quickly showed that he is deserving of a number. I believe it's number two that he's wearing now, uh, but I could be wrong. Let me double check that. But um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still excited to see this guy play, and I, I want to continue to uh, watch him in person. So hopefully we'll be able to do that. Number six. So obviously he had a single digit uh, somewhat, you know, uh, the only other person I can remember wearing number six is Joe Torrey. So uh says a lot about where they think Jeff McNeil inserts into yeah. uh, Mets lore. So, um, and Dylan Betances, I mean, what can you say of his – I, I believe it should be his only Mets season. I, I believe it is a team option. And, and uh, guys, you can clarify it. I'll pass it on to you after this, Rich. But, you know, I, they it, it was just one of those Wilpon experiments that wasn't a disaster, but wasn't nearly perfect nonetheless. So go ahead, Rich. Well, um, and I think, and I could be wrong, I don't have baseball reference in front of me, I, I think uh, um, Batances' option is a player option. So I think he is probably coming back for next year. I think that was the reason he signed with the Mets. I think the Mets and the Phillies were both after him, and the Mets were willing to give a player option for the second year. Again, I don't have that in front of me, but I'm pretty sure. So we might be seeing Dylan Batances again. Um, you know, and, and just there's not much I can say on top of that. You know, Wilmer Font was a guy that, you know, when the Mets were desperate for bullpen help in the middle of 19. Uh, they made that trade for him, and, you know, he, he was there for a month or two, and now he's up in Toronto. Uh, Dario Alvarez, I just want to say one thing about him. Here's a guy who wore the number for less than a month, right, from 9-3 uh, – I'm sorry, a year and a month, 9-3-2014 to 10-1-2015. What I remember about him, when the Mets swept the Nationals 
in Washington. I think, Sam, I think you were actually at those games. When, when the Mets swept the Nationals Labor Day week in 2015 to really take control of the division, I remember there was a point in that game, in, in the first game on Labor Day, when I believe it might have been Harper come, came up as a tying run at bat, and they brought Alvarez out of the bullpen to pitch him. Alvarez lefty pitcher, and he struck him out. I believe that's right. Uh, he got some very critical, a couple of very critical outs in that game, in that Labor Day game in 2015. So, so that's my memory of, of Dario Alvarez. And then, of course, you know, when McNeil came up, he had 68. You know, the, the common joke is, you know, he's, he's the right guard, right, uh, when he comes up and he's, and he's wearing 68. But, and the guy who has staying power like that isn't going to wear the right guard's number for very long. So those are my thoughts. Howard, I'm going to phrase number 68, number 68 to you this way. I'm going to ask you to put your general manager's cap on because the scuttlebutt around New York City and the surrounding area uh, the rumored trade is or involves Francisco Lindor of the Cleveland Indians. And one of the names being mentioned on the Mets side is uh, Jeff McNeil. Would you, if you were a Mets executive, would you include Jeff McNeil in a package for Francisco Lindor? Well, before I make, if I'm going to think about making that trade, I have to be able to sign Lindor to an extension because uh, I think he's got one year left, correct? And I know him really well because I saw him in Columbus first. I haven't seen as much of McNeil uh, or don't know him as well. So, But you've got to be able to sign Lindor to an extension to be able to consider that kind of trade. He's a terrific talent. Uh, and, and by the way, you mentioned 68. If you ever want me to say anything about the 1968 Mets, I was there and I remember it really well. I'll be happy to comment on that too. Well, you may start for us, sir. Go right ahead. Well, that season stands out for a few reasons. Number one, it was Gil Hodges' first year as manager of the Mets. And he was a terrific manager and he brought a lot. The other thing two that really stands out, that was Jerry Kuzman's rookie year. And Kuzman had a sensational rookie season. He almost won 20 games. I believe he won 19. And he was second in the rookie of the year voting to Johnny Bench. And if you look at what Kuzman did as a pitcher and what Bench did offensively, you would give the nod to Kuzman. But Johnny Bench was Johnny Bench defensively, too, throwing out guys. So, And he's a catcher, so he won the Rookie of the Year award. The Mets came so close to having back-to-back Rookies of the Year in Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman. So the addition of Kuzman was absolutely spectacular. And then you have Seaver and you have Kuzman, a great one-two punch. And the other thing, too, is I remember the Mets – being around the 500 mark that season for several months. Now, they did finish a good deal below 500, but that was by far their best year to that point where they were 500 several months into the season, and that had not happened before. And then, of course, the stage was set for what happened the following year, which is still to this day was boggles everybody's mind who remembers it going all the way in 69. But that 1968 season, for those reasons, among others, was very, very important for the Mets. Sam? Um, just what stands out to me when looking at the team page is the team total 
the the overall ERA here is 272. I mean, that's outstanding. And, you know, it, it really, it, when you look at this, I mean, it, it obviously, I think exactly what, without overanalyzing it, obviously the offense wasn't there. Um, and if you look at it, it's, the team totals was 228, and that's where you get the 89 losses. Uh, but that ended up translating to serious, seriously big hits. Uh, within a year um, to go along with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold out and not look at what the team ERA was in 1969. Uh, and with no uniform number with 1969, 1969 rightly deserves its own podcast uh, with number 69. But it, that's what jumped out to me here is, is like he was talking about Kuzman. I, I went there. I, I went right here to Kuzman and saw that he had a 208 ERA to go along with those 19 wins. And then you look at the rest of the, the team ERA. I mean, it, it says it ranked uh, in, in uh, 10 NL teams. It was number four. Uh, I'd love to take a look. Well, you know, 1968, uh, this is obviously the year that changed everything when it came to pitching, and they lowered the mound after this. But obviously there was a strength being created uh, from scratch with this Mets team. And uh, forever – you know, to this day, pitching's the name of the game, really, uh, until 2020, when all of a sudden we have the, you know, a, a, a uh, all-star caliber offense and we can't have our pitching together. Isn't that how it goes, guys? Rich, you have added it as you will, but Gil Hodges made it a point of contention in 68 about losing one-run games. Said if they could turn that around, you know, things will be a lot better. Yeah, and, and you know, Mike, you, um, it, it obviously predates me a bit uh, as a fan, but um, but I, but if you look at the statistics, you see, like Howard said, you see the building blocks of what was to come. And yes, '69, winning a hundred games and all of that, and obviously winning the World Series, to a degree, it absolutely came out of nowhere. But you could see the progression. They had won 61 games the previous season. They won 73. So they won 12 more in 68 and 67. So you're seeing a progression. You're seeing the great pitching. And we all know, you know, that the game is all about pitching. Um, so you're seeing great pitching. You're seeing um, a progression in terms of wins. And, yeah, you know, winning the World Series is still a surprise, but it, it – I've always felt that it didn't come out of nowhere, you know, because you, you, they, there was a trend line there. The Mets were starting to build a trend line. And I'm looking through the statistics here, and I, I did a piece for Mets, Mets Online about this, and I think they finished second in the National League in Team ERA. I believe it was, it was very good. So, so again, you, you could see that they had these young arms, that those young arms, if they could just complement them, a little bit more offense that, that this team had something. So yeah, that, that, those are my thoughts on 68. And can I also jump in real quick to the point about those one run losses that when looking at the chart here of the losses, you can really only say that maybe 18 were definitive for the opposition, uh, that everything else was, was really three runs or less of those 89 of those 89 games. So basically like 60, just a little bit over 60 games, you can say that they could have turned their way at any given point had they had the proper offense. Well said. At least uh, 20 members of the 69 Mets are on the team already. Uh, 
you know, so there's not much more tinkering around with this team that's going to take place. Obviously, we know the big trade that's coming the next season with Clendenin, but I would imagine 68 was a very fun season. Uh, and, Howard, you can confirm that, right? Fun if you were at Chiefs yeah. Stadium? It was fun because you had Seaver and now you had Kuzman, too. And I remember Kuzman getting off to a great start and thinking, you know, it's not that easy. How good is this guy? And he proved to be very, very good. But, yeah, it gave the Met fans a lot of hope and the fact that they can compete. And I, I know you said the record was 73 and 89, but I think for quite a while, as I said earlier, it was around 500 and it slid toward the end. Uh, but it, it, as you guys accurately said, the seeds were planted basically that year with a good young pitching. And, of course, with, with Tom Seaver, what he did was so important in that not only is a terrific pitcher, but the culture had to be changed. They were lovable losers. And people got, you know, they love the Mets. Oh, they're losers. And Tom Seaver said losing is not acceptable. And to some extent, and I made this point on Twitter about a month ago, I think this comparison to Willis Reed in the Knicks, too. When Willis Reed got to the Knicks, they were losers, too. And he said, this isn't acceptable. And so he felt that way, and the Knicks turned their fortunes around and got much better, too. Uh, in fact, the following year, they won their champion, first championship. So uh, it was really a lot of fun for Mets fans to, to be much better and much more competitive that year, and the seeds were planted. One last question. Nolan Ryan, he's only 21. Uh, nobody knew then what was to come, did they? No, and they traded him for Jim Fergosi a few years later, and then he just blossomed, you know, uh, for whatever the reason. It, maybe it was a change of scenery. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, he was used in relief, I think, at that time, too, by the Mets in 68 and 69, started some games, but just didn't uh, come into his own until a few years later, and it does take a while sometimes for a pitcher and Nolan Ryan, by the way, helped Randy Johnson come into his own, too, with some advice years and years later. But, yes, uh, he never came into his own with the Mets, and then he had some great years with other teams, seven no-hitters. And as a lifelong baseball man, now that we're here and, and, and the name just stands out, we've already mentioned him, Gil Hodges. Why do you suppose – He's not in the Hall of Fame today. And what do you pose his chances are of being uh, enshrined this year? Or I, I should well, say I 2021. Think he should, Excuse me. I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, one of the things that would have helped him in his cause, he was a terrific fielding first baseman, even though he originally signed as a catcher. But they didn't put the gold glove in until 1957. And I think he won one or two right off the bat. So if they had that gold glove award in five, six years earlier, and he ends up winning six, seven, eight gold gloves, then somebody could have said, well, wait a minute, look at him. Look what he accomplished as far as gold gloves are concerned, too. He's surrounded by a lot of great players, a lot of great players. In fact, Pee Wee Reese had a great line about him. He said, Gil Hodges' hands are so large the only reason why he wears a glove at first base is because it's fashionable. <laughs> but I, just to uh, piggyback off that, that's one of the big 
talking points of why Keith Hernandez should be in the Hall of Fame. So I I, uh, I concur, Howard. Yes, you know, defense is very important over there and, and means so much. And Gil was a, a terrific player for, for many, many years, too. And uh, on some great Brooklyn clubs, you know, you've got Snyder in the Hall of Fame, Pee Wee in the Hall of Fame, Roy Campanella in the Hall of Fame. It took Pee Wee a while to get there. He didn't get there until 1984. You know, Pee Wee was just, was just sensational, too, although I only saw him at the end. I, I heard a lot of stories about him. Uh, gentlemen, unless you have any outstanding topics that you'd like to uh, present, I have nothing else. We'll move into what we call, Howard, our final word. Uh, it's free form. Anything that's on your mind, you're welcome to. I'll start with the fellas first. And, Rich, I'll go to you for your final word. My final word. My final word would be anxious. Um, I'm getting a little bit anxious to – see some action, you know, see some action on the player front. Uh, I know the winter meetings are coming up. Yes, they'll be virtual as everything else is these days. But, um, you know, with that, hopefully we can get something going. You know, we're hearing a lot about the Mets are in on this guy and that guy and maybe George Springer is going to Toronto. So the Mets need to step up their game there. All, right, all this talk is, is great and it keeps us engaged, but I'm getting anxious for some genuine moves. So that's my final word. Uh, Sam, I will interject. Uh, I would like to say, Howard, as a fellow Brooklynite, thank you for your time this this evening, and and especially for the education and helping us unravel that minor league situation. Uh, and again, congratulations on on what will soon be in a couple of years a 50 year broadcasting career. Uh, incredible. Uh, one of the well, thank you so much. One of the famous minor league teams in, in, in all of minor league baseball. Uh, I get lost in that. I'm so appreciative of that and your work. And uh, I intend to listen to more games uh, when they become available and the gentlemen take the field once again. That being said, I'm going to pass the baton to Sam uh, and have him continue our final word and wrap this thing up. Thank you, Mike. And, um, First of all, Howard, thank you again. I look forward to talking some Brooklyn broadcasting with you tomorrow night. Uh, my final word is patience. Uh, to reiterate what Steve Cohen recently said on Twitter, which he has been such a part of since he became the owner, um, I, of course we all want him to take advantage of uh, a bear market, if you will, when it comes to the rest of the other teams. Uh, but I, I think that one of the things I always liked about Sandy was that he, he, he was a presence that doesn't necessarily listen to the back pages uh, and react to the tabloids, um, especially within the Wilpons ranks, who always did so, and in fact banned one once upon a time. Um, so I, I want to say that my last word is patience. Uh, I believe that when it's all said and done, we could see two, maybe even three of the big free agents standing up there throwing Mets jerseys on. So let's let the process take its course. Kelvin, again, thank you for your time this evening. Your final word, sir. Well, I'm anxious to see the final agreement between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, and hopefully they will have a new agreement within the next few weeks. And I might also add, Please remember, this is important for me, and maybe for you guys, but remember the words that I learned from Joe Garagiola many years ago. 
baldness is not a disease. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime there's a a Joe Guerra. Oh, man, I can't even. How am I not pronouncing his name? Mike, please take it away. (laughs) Anytime there's a reference to Vamaya. Nothing more can be said. What a wonderful discussion uh, covering a wide range of topics. A delightful conversation, Mr. Kelman. Thank you once again. If you don't mind, please take a second. Give us one more little bio before we say goodnight for the evening. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been my pleasure to be on with you. Likewise, sir. And, uh, Let's hope that these games get started and fans are able to fill the seats again and, uh, you know, get this national pastime underway again. That being said, I will reiterate a happy belated, happy Thanksgiving to all. I bid you all peace, calm, and health forward to bigger and better things. Uh, Even though the weather's getting colder and things are starting to spike, just behave and uh, follow protocols and we'll all get through this together. Good night, everyone. On behalf of Ametsian Podcast and my partners, good night. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, Howard. Thank you very much. Let's go, Matt. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus